Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello. This episode is brought to you as part of Wanted Design Manhattan Online, a conversation series presented with Design Milk and Clever. Each day from May 11th to the 22nd, 2020, we'll feature design dialogues, including new episodes of Clever and engaging live conversations with very special guests. To view the schedule and register for events, head to wanteddesignnyc.com slash online. That's wanteddesignnyc.com slash online. Today, we're rebroadcasting a special episode that was taped live at Wanted Design Manhattan 2019. Enjoy! I saw this chair that was made from 80% recycled material that would last forever. It was like too important of a company to let die. Hi everyone and welcome to Clever Live. I'm Amy Devers. And I'm Jamie Derringer. We're coming to you live from NYC by Design, North America's largest celebration of design that attracts hundreds of thousands of visitors from across the globe. We're here at Wanted Design Manhattan, and we're speaking with Greg Bookbinder of Emico. In 1998, he saw potential in Emico, which stands for Electric Machine and Equipment Company. I loved figuring that out a down-and-out military fabricator in Hanover, Pennsylvania, and transformed it from an industrial Navy producer that's famous for the 1006 aluminum chair into a top design furniture brand that uses waste material to make the best possible long-lasting chairs. And Emico has a great comeback story, and actually Greg does too, so let's get to it. I'm Greg Buckbinder. I live in Long Beach, California. I make chairs. I think I do it because it's, it's one of the most difficult, challenging things you could do. And most of the famous architects always want to do a chair. But what, where my heart is in chairs is how we make them. We make chairs to last. We make chairs so that it'll have the least impact on the environment. So that's why I do it. I want to go way back to the beginning, though. I would love to know where and how you grew up, what your childhood was like, what your family was like. Tell us the history of Greg. I grew up in Southern California, and as my mom would describe me, I would be running around the neighborhood in diapers or sometimes without diapers, <laughs> chasing after my older brother and his friends. And let's just say my mom had a very 
long leash on me, or maybe no leash. <laughs> Wild, feral, yeah, just yeah. feral child. Right, pretty much. And I grew up in a house where my mom loved design, loved art. She painted, she did crafts, and always had projects around the house. And my dad was an engineer, and he worked on everything. He worked on cars, he, he built things, he fixed things, and he actually did furniture. Uh, he did some work for Herman Miller, and they'd go to trade shows, and they'd give him the rejects. So if you go to ICFF, you wonder what happens to all that old furniture. Well, back in his day, it ended up in our house. And we had a mid-century modern house, and we had all this rejects around the house. Was your dad an engineer business person? Was, I mean, was he an entrepreneur? He began, he was educated as an engineer, but he, he really was an entrepreneur. What stands out about the teenage years? If you were feral and naked as a child, <laughs> let's, let's hear the, the dirt from the teenage years. Well, not much change other than <laughs> I, I started wearing surf trunks. My favorite were canvas by Caton. And Mrs. Caton worked in the back of the, of the little tiny place and would sew trunks. You'd measure your waist and sew trunks up and... She used this canvas material, and I loved it because the older the material got, the more the sun bleach would get, and you'd start off with red surf trunks, and pretty soon they would be pink from the salt water and the sun. But anyway, I spent most of my time, my teenage years, in the ocean, and I was surfing before school and after school and during school sometimes, and when I wasn't surfing... That means skipping school. Sometimes, yeah. Just so we're clear on this. Right. Surfing is always best, at least in Southern California, and most places I've been to, early mornings, that's when there's no wind. And when the wind comes up in the afternoon, another way to get out in the ocean for me was sailing. So I also, you know, would surf in the mornings, and then the afternoons would be Hobie Cats and lasers, and sometimes I started racing big boats offshore. So it was just... Any way I could get out to the ocean was what I did. I want to ask you how you ended up at USC to study business and why you decided to study business and how that kind of shaped your path to where you are now. My passion at the time was, was surfing. And I had left high school early thinking that I had enough units to graduate. And again, I had a really long leash, so my parents had no idea whether I had enough or not. And I decided to go to... Cal Berkeley, because from what I knew, it was on the ocean, and there was surf. <laughs> <laughs> and I went up there, and it was cold weather and rainy, and I found out there's no surf in Berkeley. <laughs> and came home, went to a party at a, a friend took me to. He was going to USC, and he took me to a sorority party. And what was really ironic is... I decided this is the school to go to. I mean, it was a great party. <laughs> and even though my dad and my brother had gone to the rivalry school, UCLA, it was just not even in my field of thinking. So it was, it was kind of a just off-the-top, quick thing that I said, this is just a great place to go. Impulse decision based on a sorority party? Impulse decision, yeah, <laughs> totally. Got it. And was business a field, I mean, a field of study that you gravitated towards, or did it just seem like an obvious choice? I, I wasn't highly motivated to do business as such. 
It was just that I really wanted to run a surfboard shop. Okay. And so I thought I'm going to have to know how to do that. So I thought I'll take some business classes and figure it out. Um, but at SC, I had a surfboard there, and I drive from and SC's in downtown LA, and you you know it's not that far from the beach, but it's still further than Huntington Beach where I lived, and I would drive, but I pretty soon figured out how to arrange my classes, so I only had to go to class Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, <laughs> if that. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday was my time, and I, would, I was surfing a lot, and I was also racing sailboats, and I, I raced an Olympic-class boat, and you know we, we were just busy. Again, it was that draw of the ocean that always kept me coming back. Give us some context. What what year was this when you were in college racing sailboats and seventy six, seventy seven, seventy eight? Okay, so I'm imagining some corduroy OP shorts. Oh, for yeah. Okay. OP, yeah, for okay, sure. Great. <laughs> yeah, and I I had a Volkswagen bus. <laughs> yes. Of course what year? Does. I had a seventy eight. I, I had a seventy one oh. with a tire on the front. You know, in high school, I would take it on surf trips to Mexico, and you know, it, it's like every trip. Let's just go a little further. And one trip, we ended up in Baja. You know, we're, we're down in Cabo. And we had a rough night one night on the beach drinking. And they kicked us out of Cabo of all places. I didn't know you could get kicked out of Cabo. <laughs> I thought that's where anything yeah, I did too. allowed. And anyway, they escorted us. And we, we drove the VW bus onto a ferry. And they took us over to Puerto Vallarta and let us cause trouble in the, in the next town. <laughs> Just move it on down, not in our right. town, yeah. over in that town. Van life, man, it sounds like good times. <laughs> but at some point you graduated and had to had to start earning your keep. I read that you went into business with the family business right after college with J. Buckbinder Industries, which was a contract furniture manufacturer, correct? Yeah, right. Yeah, okay, can you tell us about that and what it was like working with your dad and what you learned right, right. on the job? Well, my dad started a, a little fabrication shop. It was a metal fabrication, and my brother and I would work for him on, like, Saturdays. He would be in charge of the kids, and he would take us to his shop. And, well, we were really cleaning things. And, and actually, he would take us and drop us off at the beach some days and leave us there. My mom only knew. He left us on the, at the beach from, like, 5 in the morning till 5 at night. But that's where he began, and... and after college, what was interesting is I got to really learn all these crafts. So I, I learned how to weld. I learned how to make things in metal. I learned how to make things. He, at that time, had a little wood shop. And so it was a great opportunity to learn how to make things. And he was such a talented engineer. He can figure out how to make anything. So it was a, it was a great mentor for me to learn and be passionate about making things. And did you always have an interest in like how the world is constructed? Is that something that you were gravitating towards anyway? Or were you sort of learning it because you had to, because it was part of your job? I think I was really interested until one day I decided to make my own surfboard. And I spent all this time shaping it, and I had the perfect board. And I was glassing it on a day when they have Santa Ana winds in Los Angeles, gets really hot. And when you're putting on the resin and the weather's that hot, it kicks off super fast. So I completely wrecked the whole surfboard. So my days of making were really, 
I was discouraged, but yes, I, to answer you, I always loved making things. That just, I grew up in that kind of household, so mm-hmm. it was something I enjoyed doing. And so this is kind of the time when the chairs come in, right? Because um, you're, can you connect the dots for us? What happened um, with the purchase of Emico? I, I understand your father purchased the company. Can you talk a little bit about that, like why he did it and how you ended up there? Let, let me go back a little bit. And, and for the people that don't know, Emico started in 1944, and they were a military contractor making these chairs for Navy ships and submarines and they have a real extraordinary process and craftsmanship and a material. And when my dad was, was, had this job shop, he was doing work for a Navy contractor that was doing mess halls on ships. And my dad would go aboard ships and he'd weld down metal posts and he would make, they couldn't have tables that would slide because the ships would roll. And he'd weld these table bases columns onto the deck and then he would make these tabletops that were made in honeycomb so that they wouldn't have any wood inside because you couldn't have fires on a boat or you couldn't have anything flammable and this subcontractor had a chair company they would use that was authorized and it was Emico and Emico at the time was going out of business and they knew my dad was really a knowledgeable guy and could operate a very complicated process, and they said, hey, you know, would you be interested, because we really have a lot of work if you're interested in that, and he acquired the company, and that was back in 1978, and, you know, that, that was kind of, you know, how he began working there. So in 78, you're driving your VW van and getting on the ocean as much as you can and working for your dad. And he acquires Emico, and Emico's not doing so well. Did your dad have a plan to turn it around or just to keep it afloat or to build it into the business portfolio so that all the contracts could be more streamlined? Or or what do you think the vision was? His vision was he was passionate about he saw this incredible process, he saw these craftsmen, he saw this product, loved all that, and he wanted to keep it going. But what happened to the company was they had one chair, the Navy chair, they had one customer. and with The government. Cus- the government. And the government really stopped building ships. The Cold War was over and there was no more shipbuilding and there was no more need for these chairs. In fact, ships would come in and they would scrap them and they would keep the chairs. So there was just all kinds of extra chairs. So he was fighting a real uphill battle trying to acquire more business from people that they, they didn't need the chairs anymore. That's the setup. But Emico has an incredible comeback story. And it starts, I think, around 1997. I think it was about 1998. And over the course of the 90s, Emico was losing lots of money. And it got to a point where my dad said, I can't keep this factory open and sent me back to Emico to close the doors. Oh, I didn't know that part of the story. Yeah. And I went there and as I, I walked through the, the, the factory, I saw good bones. I saw all the things I grew up with. I saw incredible craft. I saw quality. I saw this, this chair that was made from 80% recycled material that would last forever. And 
for me, it was like too important of a company to let die. And I just felt like at that time, it would be really great if I gave it a try. And I, I knew there were other people that had found opportunities, like Itori Satsas had used Emoco chairs in Esprit stores, and Frank Gehry had done a bagel store with, with Emoco chairs, and Terrence Conran had done restaurants. And I just felt like we just need to find a new customer, an architect or designer that could specify this as opposed to relying upon the government. And so I, uh, well, first I called up ICFF to see if I can get into the show, and they told me how much it was. <laughs> and so I said, well, I can't afford it now. But they said, we'll give you a free pass. So if you want to get a free pass to get in there, just say you want a show next year, and I'll give you one. Anyway, I took a chair, and I went up to New York, and I just started going. I went down to Soho, and I went door to door. And anybody that would listen to me, you know, if it was a vintage store, and most of the time they had seen the chairs before, and they said, you know, I could get these things for $5 from the Navy Surplus store, and nobody was interested. I went to furniture, nice dealers, nice showrooms, and I basically didn't make any, any progress at all. And later that day I was at ICFF, walking up and down the aisles, and I ran into Philippe Stark. And I was staying at the Paramount Hotel that had our chairs in it because I had seen their ship to the Paramount Hotel and I wanted to see how they were using them. And I said, Mr. Stark, I love the way how you used Emico chairs. He said, oh, uh, what chairs? I said, you know, the Navy chair. He said, oh, he, what do you do? And I said, well, I own the company. He said, oh, I thought it would be a bunch of old military guys. <laughs> and um, he said, I've always dreamed of doing a chair for Emico. Would you be interested? And I said, I'd be interested, but we can't afford to pay you. And he said, well, okay, we'll work that out. That's no problem. So anyway, we ended up sitting down and um, meeting, and he got flipped over the back of a magazine, and he started to sketch, and he sketched a chair that was the Hudson chair and some stools and you know, a whole bunch of ideas he had. And he said, you know, I know I'm drawing this fast like I'm just making this up. He said, but I've been thinking about this. And he said, this is just my plotter. Needless to say, you know, that's, that's where it all began. That's the rebirth. You acquired the company from your dad and all the debt and ran into Philippe Stark and started a collaboration and turned it from a government contract fabricator into a design company. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. You've worked with some 
unbelievably talented designers. I mean, Nendo, Barbara and Osgerby, um, Frank Gehry, Jasper Morrison. Um, so you certainly have had some incredible collaborations and some really wonderful products that have come out of that. I'd love to know a little bit more about after that first chair that you did, the Hudson chair with Philippe Stark, how did the collaborations happen after that? Were you, did you show that and then did you call up other designers and talk to them about it? And what is the, what's the creative process behind that? What does that look like? Starting with like the Hudson chair with Stark, it really started with his sketch. I took that back to the factory and they just, I mean, there were no drawings. I mean, just a sketch <laughs> and they would fabricate what they thought. I take it back to Stark. And he would mark it up with, well, let's make this, tilt this back, do this, make this longer. And I'd come back, and we have times where it wasn't easy to do that. And he said, Greg, look, he said, if it's hard to do, just do it. If it's impossible, I'll change it. So that was a real learning experience for me. But initially, it was pure excitement, running around, meeting with him, having him kind of direct you know, what we're doing. And it wasn't about really even considering anything other than how can we make this thing work? And he said, okay, I want to do the finish and I want to polish it so it's bright and shiny. And we needed polish. So we tried and I'd show him a chair and it looked kind of a little brighter, not much. And I tried again. I talked to people and people would say, oh, you have to paint it or powder coat it. And I never liked that idea of, of, of painting. And um, some people say you could chrome plane it, and it was like really toxic. And finally, I took a chair to a neighbor that was Harley Davidson, not too far from Emico. And they polished all these aluminum parts. And I went over there and I brought a chair and I introduced myself. Anyway, some of the guys working there took the chair and they showed me. They took a lathe and they put compound on it and they went, nyeow, nyeow. And I looked at what they did, and all of a sudden, under this kind of rough, brushed finish was this beautiful, jewel-shiny material. I didn't know it would work that way. It's just there's no coatings, there's no anything. And we got an order from Ian Schrager for 1,000 chairs. Wow. And, I mean, 1,000 chairs when each one was taking us eight hours, the chair, <laughs> and we had no polishers to do this work. So it was really hairy, and... The only reason we ever finish is because the hotel was really delayed. And we finished it. There was a big party. Terrence Conran had a new shop at 59th Street Bridge. And Stark was there. And Conran was there. And we had all these chairs being delivered to the hotel. And they had them hanging from the ceiling. And it looked like we really knew what we were doing. But <laughs> we were really very lucky. Fake it till you make it, yeah. right? But you know what I love is... I'm staying in the Hudson Hotel like right now. And in my room is a polished Hudson chair. All 1,000 of those chairs we made 20 years ago are still alive and doing their job. And they have like, you know, kind of like me, a lot of scratches on my face as I get older. <laughs> and they're a little duller. But it's, they've had a really, they've, they've done a really good job. And that's, that's what I mean about making things that have a long life. Yeah, that's got to feel good. I, I have one follow-up question about this. I need to know, 
Was there a collective excitement amongst all the workers and all the makers in your factory? When you bring them these sketches and say, okay, we're going to change things up and do something brand new, and you, they can feel you're trying to inject new life into their systems, were they excited? Were they resisting? Or what was the atmosphere like? Absolute excitement in the sense that here's something new. They're being challenged, and how are we going to do this? And it, nobody had challenged them. Nobody had asked them to do anything ever. And we had people there that were, their grandfather worked at the factory and their father worked at the factory and, you know, and they had been doing the same thing. And this was exciting, but I think the real excitement was when Philippe Stark came to the factory. And it was really great because he had a film crew with him. He had these glasses with a camera way before Google's time. And he went and we had a a meeting with all the craftsmen and they were all lined up and he's telling them, he said, you know what you guys do is so good? He said, your hands and your eyes and your hearts. He said, people around the world love what you do. And I I can't tell you that speech he gave to those, those workers was the most important thing that they had had in their whole careers. One guy, when he retired, and I was, I was talking to him, I said, so what was, you know, what was special and what was your most important day? He said, the day that Phil came and talked to us. And, um, but it was, it was really special having him there. That's amazing. That's a great story. You talked a little bit about making chairs that last. And, of course, sustainability is really at the core of Emica. Why is that so important to you? It's important to me because... I, I think when you spend so much time outdoors, especially in the ocean, and you have a real appreciation for the environment, and you are out there and you see dolphins and sea life, and you really care deeply. And I think growing up in Southern California, I had high school classes that were ecology classes. I mean, it's just something that we grew up with. So I always wanted to do something that had a positive effect on the planet. And you are with your recycled PET materials. Can you talk a little bit about how you worked that out? Yeah. You know, it was interesting. Back in 2006, Coca-Cola was at the Museum of Modern Art, and they asked Paolo Antonelli, they said, you know, we have a problem. It's these plastic bottles, these bottles here. that He said they're ending up in landfills, and we want to work with a company that can help us develop the material and make something structurally sound that people will really appreciate so the material starts to get used. We need it to not go in landfills. We need people to use this material. And she said, you know, you should call up Greg because that's Greg feels strongly about the environment and they do something right now and, and maybe he'd be interested. And they called and initially... I said, no, we're, you know, we're not a promotional company. We make serious chairs. And I thought of Coca-Cola. This is just a marketing deal. And, and I wasn't interested. And then they had this big cheese call me up and say, we're really sincerely serious because this is a big problem. And we know we're contributing. Unfortunately, these PET bottles are the best way to deliver beverages. It's the least costly. They don't break. And... It's, it's just a big problem, not only with Coca-Cola, but all food industries, all cosmetic industries, that, that's what's being used, and somebody needs to work on this. So at that point, 
I felt like, you know, if we can keep plastic out of the oceans, if we can do something, that, as soon as they told me I can contribute to that, it was something that we decided, let's, let's work on this. And now you're making chairs out of 80% recycled plastic? Yeah, 75%. We have different materials. So when we were working with Coca-Cola, the whole point was to, to work with this PET. But we also got exposed because I, I was able to meet other scientists and material scientists and chemists that showed me other materials that I didn't even know about. So it gave us a chance to say, this is kind of interesting because there's a lot of problems out there. So if there's any students here, I think the one thing that most of these companies are lacking that they really need, they need someone to help them with materials that are right now going to waste or causing problems. So I think that that's an area that really excited me that hey, we can do something to really make impact in a lot of other materials. So it, it was interesting because right about that time, we're working with uh, O.K. Sato from Nendo. And Nendo came and visited us, and he wanted to know, well, I want to hear about the recycled materials you're using. And I said, okay, well, we'll show you what we're, we're playing. And we were playing with this recycled concrete made with 50% recycled glass and with cork and with old barns that had fallen down in the area that, that were 200, 300 years old, taking the wood and using it again and this polyethylene that they make milk cartons from. And, and he looked at all the different things. I said, so what would you like to work on? He said, let's do all of them. And that was really, Damn. yeah, it's exciting but scary because none of them had we perfected. But it gave us a chance to really push our suppliers who we were working with and say, we need to solve this and you can help. And when we launched the suit chair, we launched with all these different seat tops. He designed kind of a podium that held these materials. And it was really a great way to sort of work on it. And, and what I've learned from the process is there are some materials better than other materials to use. It's not that this is better or worse, but some use more energy. Some have a longer life. Some are more, you know, like the concrete one that has concrete and recycled glass. It's, it's a beautiful product, but it's really heavy. So some people say, well, this is too heavy to move around. But some applications where they don't want, like, little kids to move these chairs around... It's great because they'll stay in place. Or if you want a chair that you could put in your shower to shave your legs, it could sit there, it won't move, and it's, it's waterproof. It's perfect. So it sounds like you're, you're leading Emico towards your, your heartfelt dream, which is sustainability and protecting the planet. And that goes all the way back to the, the feral child in the ocean who's one with the sea, I guess. <laughs> So I want to shift gears a little bit to your personal life, because when I was reading up on you, I learned that you went through a pretty, pretty serious tragedy. You said that it made a big impact on your life, and that's the passing of your father. Can you tell us how you got through that tragedy and what kind of shift in perspective you're left with after something like that? I was really working hard. I wore, at Emico, we had a skeleton crew of people, and I wore all the hats. I was in charge of sales. I was in charge of 
operations. I was in charge of finance. I was, I, I was in charge. I was everything. I was traveling all around the country. And, you know, with Stark, he got me to go to Milan. And, and so we're doing all this stuff. And it's a struggling business. But I'd always make sure Sundays... I would ride bikes with my dad, and we rode bikes with a, a, some other young guys, and he always felt like as he was getting older that he wouldn't be able to keep up, and so I got a tandem bike, and so the two of us would ride this tandem, and every Sunday we'd ride down Pacific Coast Highway from Huntington Beach, where he lived, down to Laguna, and we'd have a cappuccino on the beach, and it was just a, a wonderful Sunday until one Sunday um, there was a car that went into the bike lane, and we got uh, run over. So that was a, a tough time. And he was killed, and I broke my neck. And I, yeah, I was in the hospital and had a halo on. So very limited to what I could do. But my perspective changed a real lot. It changed in the sense that I was scared to death about Emiko and would, I, would we be able to make it? Can we survive? That went away. I, after, I just, I felt like after going through that, I can go through anything. So it, it changed how I, I wouldn't react to situations. It just was, okay, we, we can deal with that. So my perspective changed quite a bit. Yeah, like what matters in life is yeah. more important. But the, the good news is that your daughter is now working with you. So it's still a family business that's wonderful. Can you talk a little bit about how your family is involved in this business, how you're starting to train your daughter to be the next generation of chairmaker. <laughs> it's interesting because like me as a kid, learning how to do all the things that my dad, you know, did. And as a maker, my daughter grew up in a house and, you know, she would cut out little chairs and say, Dad, show Mr. Stark this chair. And, um, you know, we worked with, uh, done a project with me with Frank Gehry. And, you know, she just thought this is what you do as a kid. So she had a real great opportunity to kind of learn about the world of, of design and of making young. And she, you know, I think any dad would be proud of their kid wanting to join. This is my passion. And she decided to to join. But I think what is interesting about her is she's like super smart. Her education's in sustainable design and engineering, and she wants to save the world. And she shares so much of my same passion. What's great at Emico is that same kind of passion all of our people have, and we have a lot of young people who really care it makes it real exciting for me. And having a daughter in the business, it also makes me realize my responsibility. And it makes me realize that this thing can live well past me. Uh, it started well before me, and it will go on after me. So there's a real comfort in knowing all the work will continue on. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the deep roots, because these chairs have a longer lifespan than humans, and the company's already been around for a long time, and from your dad to you to your daughter. Not only that, but it's got it's got deep roots in Hanover, Pennsylvania, and I'm, I'm wondering how meaningful that is to you to have this long lineage, when especially during a time when everything is 
move fast and break things. And that kind of idea is, doesn't seem compatible with the slow furniture movement. And yet there's something so comforting about the idea of a chair that's so classic and not going anywhere and also not harming the earth and the production of it. Do you feel that your personal legacy and your family legacy is super entwined with the with the chairs in a really meaningful way? It's totally intertwined. I mean, growing up, my kids would say, Dad, you're in chairland. But I mean, when I go to the factory and I see what these guys do, I get re-energized and I feel like this is, I'm doing something, I'm keeping this craft alive, I'm keeping these jobs available, but they're doing something that the world can't lose. They're doing something that's meaningful. The world's gotten away from that, and, and there's, we're kind of gotten to be a consume and throw away society. It would be easy to make Emoco into a consume and throw away company, and it would be a very profitable route to do. We choose not to do that. We choose to do it the hard way. We choose to, to do it because it's, it's the best thing we could do for the planet. And I hope we can inspire other people to kind of realize that maybe it's better to buy fewer things and buy better things and keep them for a long time than just to acquire more things that you, you throw away. So you're, you're still working in the business. Your daughter hasn't taken over quite yet. Um, is there anything that you really feel like you want to do? I mean, you're leaving behind this wonderful legacy anyway, but is there anything you still feel like you have yet to scratch the surface of or something you're really excited about doing next? One thing I'm real excited about that we're working on is Emigo House in Venice Beach, only because I've spent a lot of my life traveling to the factory back and forth and when people come to visit it just and to have a little piece of the factory closer to home is exciting and it's also exciting because I'm taking everything I learned on making a chair into a building we bought an old sewing shop from 1941 that was dilapidated but we're saving all the materials we possibly can we're not using any kind of VOCs any kind of paint uh, we're, we're doing zero energy we're doing things to make this a structure that will last another 100 years. So it's interesting taking our philosophy on one object that's a chair and applying it to something else because it's what I think the world needs to do to everything we're doing and everything we're building just to, to really use fewer materials, the materials we use, make sure they'll hold up and last a long time. And I think it will, again, be sort of representative of of an idea that we'd like other people to, to emulate. That sounds really great. What's the timeline on that? When can we plan on visiting? Fingers crossed. I, I, I hope to have it done before the end of this year. So we're, we're close. We've been working on it. We have a lot of requirements, especially in Venice Beach, that we have to follow. And I think most of them are really good because they're, they're about energy conservation. But we're way ahead of anything that anybody's ever done. So it's not hard to qualify. It just takes time to get the red tape done. But we're, we're making good progress. Well, that's it for our questions. But we definitely want to open it up to the audience. I'm sure they have some questions for you, too. So anybody out there who wants to ask Greg Buckbinder a question? 
Hi. Your chairs are so beautiful and iconic. And uh, recently I was doing some furniture shopping um, for my home, and I noticed that there are a lot of knockoffs, a lot of replicas in the market. And I was wondering if that sort of impacts your world or if that's something that you try to contend with um, and, and how that might impact your business. We're really aggressive about that, and, and when we have to, we litigate. It takes time and money, and it keeps us from our next new project, which is you know really good for the design industry to do that. So it's, it's really a difficult challenge, and, and there's so many, it's so easy to sell things on platforms like Amazon, and it, there's not much control. I'm hopeful, I, about two weeks ago, I was asked to go to a roundtable discussion at the White House, which surprised me, but we've been very uh, successful in having counterfeit goods seized in customs. And so they identified me as a small business person that has been successful, and they had all the big platforms there, and, and all the top government people from Customs Border Patrol and U.S. Trademark and all these different agencies, and they're really interested in making sure small businesses like ours can stay in business. If it's not regulated or not controlled anyway, eventually... The average person doesn't even know their knockoffs, and they're going to be buying them. But since that meeting, the Amazon people, they've reached out. They've put all our, our copyrights on. They have a thing called brand registry. They're, they're really, they sound really serious about wanting to clean that up because in the meeting, they said over 40% of products sold on Amazon are counterfeit. So it's it's a definitely a big problem, and it does impact us greatly. Not only do we lose the sale, but the chairs end up in locations where you'll see a chair that looks like Emico, but it's breaking, and it's not Emico. It's it's someone that skipped the heat treating, someone that skipped a process, and it makes us look terrible. So it's yes, it's a big problem. For most of the companies, uh, a classic or an icon like the Navy chair would be untouchable. But Emeco is launching the third iteration of the chair. You, thought you did it with Coke, now, now you're doing it in wood. How, can you expand on, on that take on reviving a classic or iterating on it? And that's an interesting topic because when we were working with Coca-Cola and we were developing this new material, we wanted the project to be about the material. We did not want it to be about what it looked like. We wanted people to understand the visual is, you've seen it a million times. It's nothing new. We wanted the emphasis to be, but here's a material, and here's why it's important. And it was important for us to be able to leverage that, that people would know, well, what are you doing with this, this icon? And we did it because... We want people to not go to a trade show like Milan and say, what's new? We want to be able to say, we're doing something special with this material and to really broaden their idea of what design is. Because design at Emico is from start to finish. It's about the material. It's about the process. It's about the product and its purposefulness, its usefulness, its longevity. It's not about what it looks like. 
Okay, so you had been making aluminum chairs for decades and were expert at pressing and forming and welding aluminum. And then all of a sudden you're deciding to make chairs out of plastic and recycled and stuff like that. It's a totally different material. You're now molding and, you know, it's a totally different kind of a thing. Making that decision is one thing, but then actually following through and, and creating plastic chairs after making all this expertise in aluminum, it's a whole new thing to learn. So maybe you can speak a little bit about that. I think part of this is that's enlightening to me as we talk about my background and, and even what happened to me. I, it not only didn't scare me, but it really interested me because it was a way to solve a big problem. Just like the early guys when they were solving the problem for Navy ships with aluminum, this is a chance for me to solve a plastic problem that, that really was important to me. It wasn't really scary. It was exciting. And I think when you approach a problem and you're excited about solving it, and we, we, you know, it wasn't just our innate knowledge at home. It was consulting with really smart people, different people that helped us, you know, working with tooling, working with injection molding, working with the material, all these things. But what was great is when you do it one time, you gain so much knowledge. And, and when we first did it, the 111 chair, the, one, the project with Coca-Cola, it was really not great. I mean, we, we worked on it for four years to try to get that chair right, and there would be blemishes because the material we're using, it's waste material. It was not consistent. So every chair, we'd have little marks. And, little, and I just said, you know... That's not a big deal because people know it's it's from waste material and blemishes will be okay until that first big order that was sent back from Tokyo saying it's not okay. And we realized, you know, we felt it was okay, but our customers expected a chair that looked perfect. Even though it was structurally okay, it didn't look okay. So that caused us to work and work and work with, with material scientists to say, how can we make this material flow faster? Because it, we had to heat up the molds really hot, put hot oil through the molds. We had to really inject them fast to try to remove it, and it wasn't working. So they worked on the material to make it flow faster. They worked on the material to make it stronger. They worked on... And all this was happening over from 2006 to today. We finally have the material... Were, it's really good. And that, that's when we started working with Barbaroscopy. And we said, you know, we really have a great material that we can take this material and we could make a chair out of a chair. 100% of the chair can be recycled forever. And that was, that was their job to now design a chair with this material. And they started thinking in terms of circular what if it's stacked in a circular way? What if it had a communication? What if this idea was baked into the chair? Yes, it was a great design of a chair, and yes, it did all these things, but it was, you know, it was over a decade of working on that material to get it to the point where we can actually do it. So, yes, it takes a lot of work, and it was hard to do, but we've gotten, we've gotten pretty good at it. We do it in-house, and we have our, our two great product people that 
are both super smart and they call themselves Femico because they're two women that run product development and they're really good, but they have outside consultants. So every time the designers come up with a, a design, they'll run it, they'll do computer uh, FEAs and they'll see where the chair's weak and they'll go back and they'll say, we need to strengthen this, we need to strengthen. So you look at this chair that, that Barbaroscopy did and it looks so delicate, it looks so nice, it's our strongest polymer chair we've ever made because the attention to all the detail and all the testing we ran beforehand. So it's an extraordinary chair because of the design and the material. I think that's all the time we have for questions, but that was, that was really astounding. So before we let you go, we want to make sure that all of our listeners and everybody here in the room can follow your work and find you on social media. Can you give us your URLs? Let's see. It's emico.net, emico chairs on Instagram. Okay. Well, again, we want to thank Wanted Design for hosting this amazing trade show and this live podcast and Paintsen and Tarquette for sponsoring this talk. And most of all, we want to thank Greg Buckbinder, everybody. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening. To see images of Greg's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we would really love it if you would support Clever through a review or rating on Apple Podcasts. Or you can also sponsor an episode or make a donation, which you could do on our website, cleverpodcast.com. And if you know someone who loves design, tell them, tell them all about Clever, get them subscribed, get them listening. Tell your grandparents. Yeah. Swear to God, grandparents need podcasts. Yeah. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find us at Clever Podcast. Clever is created, produced, and hosted by us, Amy Devers and Jamie Derringer, also known as 2VDE Media, with production help from Nick Johnson and Jenny Josephson, and editing by Rich Straffolino. Our music is by L1011, and Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.